chapter 13. It's the second half of the chapter. You'll find it on pages 264 to 265 in your pew Bibles. And you'll want to have that Bible open so you can follow along with us. As you're getting to 2 Samuel 13, uh, just to kind of orient us, uh, this whole summer we've been uh, kind of skipping around different sections of the Bible that we missed, that we kind of passed over in our survey of the entire Bible uh, over the course of the school year. So um, last fall, we started in Genesis, and we did the whole fall just in the book of Genesis in the beginning of the Bible. And then from the spring all the way up to May, we kind of covered at 30,000 feet the rest of the, the main headings of the rest of the Bible. And over the summer, we've been just kind of catching the missing pieces of uh, some of the, the key stories and the, and the key ideas and, ideas and the key characters that we've missed. And what David did a couple weeks ago is he gave us two really key moments in the life of King David. First, his um, uh, defeat of Goliath, and then his defeat by sin when he uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then uh, had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, murdered. And so as we look at this chapter here, this is um, really the next chapter after David is confronted. And think of it as kind of a postscript to David's story. And it describes the really the aftermath, uh, the consequences of David's sin, uh, not just in his life, but in the life of his family, which is really what the rest of the book uh, talks about. So let's open up our scriptures together and uh, please stand, uh, if you will, for the reading of scripture. Second Samuel 13, starting in verse 19. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this to heart. And so Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Abnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king, David, said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not... Please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Now skipping down to verse 37. 
But Absalom fled, and he went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a minute and we can reflect on it. We've got plenty to talk about. As we're jumping back in, you probably notice we're we're here in the second half of chapter 13. And the first half of chapter 13 um, describes a a pretty horrific event. It's the um, the violation of Tamar, Tamar, uh, David's daughter, by her brother Amnon. And we're not going to go into that, uh, but we will talk about some of the uh, consequences of it. Um, Starting here in verse 19. And we look at this passage, not just because we like looking at really, really troubling parts of the Bible, because there's a lot of really, really troubling parts of the Bible, but we want to sit under Scripture, and especially when we hear uh, the, the story uh, of someone like David, who we, we often look at as a, a hero uh, in the Bible, and in so many different ways, he, he was a hero, um, If we just end where we ended before with David being forgiven of his sin and David going and worshiping the Lord, uh, we don't really do justice to the to the what the Bible teaches about the consequences of our actions, even though our sins uh, may have been forgiven. So what we're going to look at this morning, this little passage, we're going to ask the question, what do we do? What do God's people do when you're confronted with unspeakable evil? When you're, when you're confronted with injustice, when you're confronted with pain, what are God's people supposed to do? Now, for all of us, we're, we're kind of confronted with evil and pain and suffering and violence and injustice all the time. I mean, if you turn on your news feed, if you turn on the news, I mean, last night before I went to bed, I turned on the news and Milwaukee is in flames. You know, there, there's violence, there, there's rioting. I mean, last month, it was just that, that one week in the middle of July, it just seemed like the whole country was exploding. So what do we do 
when we're confronted with real legitimate pain and real anger. And when it's not just out there, when you feel it in here, what are God's supposed, people supposed to do? How do they respond? How do you engage? Um, many of you probably know, I think I'm supposed to do something. <laughs> um, but, but what am I supposed to do? How do I engage with the situation without hurting it? <laughs> How can I help without hurting or getting hurt in the process? Now, uh, one option you could take is, is kind of the, uh, the, the journalist approach. Uh, you could just kind of spread the word about what's going on. This is what um, a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, this guy, uh, Kevin Carter, decided to do. I read his story uh, earlier this week, and I thought, this is exactly <laughs> what happens to us so much of the time. This is a photographer, Kevin Carter. He uh, made his career out of engaging with evil. Uh, in the middle of uh, the 80s and the early 90s, uh, he decided he saw all the injustice. He saw uh, starvation in Africa. He saw th- these violent, corrupt political regimes. And he said, I know what I can do. I can take pictures. I can tell the world about what's happening. And you might have seen one of his pictures. It was super famous. Uh, a picture of a starving child in Somalia kind of kneeling on the ground. And then in the background of the photo, there's a, there's a vulture just waiting for the child. And so Kevin Carter, the guy who witnessed that firsthand and took a picture of it. And uh, he said in an interview at the beginning of his career, at first, when I encountered all this suffering, I was appalled at what I witnessed people doing. And it was troubling to me. But then people started talking about my pictures. And I felt like maybe... My actions weren't that bad. Maybe I was actually doing something good by by taking these pictures and and spreading awareness. Maybe being a witness to something this horrible wasn't necessarily such a bad thing to do. But uh, that photograph, the little girl in the vulture, it won a Pulitzer Prize. And later on that year, Kevin Carter took his own life. And he wrote in his suicide note, he said, I'm haunted by the vivid memories of the things I've seen, of starving kids, of trigger-happy madmen, of killer executioners. We are so prone to evil ourselves, and we are such weak vessels, are we not, that when you encounter real pain, when you encounter real suffering... When we enter into a broken situation, it seems like we get broken in the process. And so we need to be careful about how we respond. And thankfully, the writer of Second Samuel gives us some guidance for our lives today, for whatever we may face ahead. And this passage, it acknowledges our weakness. I mean, the Bible is incredibly honest about the human heart because God, who inspired it, he made our hearts. And uh, this passage today acknowledges our weakness and it warns us that because God's people, us, are prone to react to sin sinfully, we need to let God direct our response to evil. Now, both Absalom and David, kind of the two main characters in this passage, they see the horrible events that surround Tamar's violation by her brother uh, Amnon, who's David's eldest son. And at the beginning of 2 Samuel 13, 
this kind of wicked act unfolds. And then the rest of the chapter deals with the response of the family to this sin. And even though both Absalom and David's, um, uh, through both Absalom and David's reactions, uh, we're going to see two ways that I would advise you not to respond to sin. And, and what I'm saying is that you can imagine uh, like you're going down a highway and there's these two off ramps. And what the text is going to do this morning is it's going to show you these two off ramps that we can go down with like big flashing neon signs that say, don't go these two ways. All right. Don't go the David way. Don't go the Absalom way. Don't go with retreat. Don't go with rebellion. But there is thankfully a third way that we can react, not by retreating, not by rebelling, but by resting in the perfect judgment of God. So first, let's look at uh, Absalom, uh, who in his response to evil reacts with rebellion. Now, so on the surface, Absalom, when he decides to murder his brother Amnon, you think it might be just kind of like an act of revenge, like a tit for tat thing. Like, hey, you killed, uh, you hurt my sister. Now I'm going to hurt you. Uh, But I'm going to show you that if we look at all the different parties involved in this little plot of Absalom, Uh, we're going to see that Absalom isn't just seeking revenge. He's actually rebelling against the king. And what happens in this this little uh, event ends up sowing the seeds for the the whole rest of David's career, where Absalom actually ends up trying to overthrow the king. Uh, So this treasonous rebellion takes root in David's kingdom, in Israel, in David's family, because of pain in Absalom's heart. And then it finally bears fruit in a plot that reveals his contempt both for his family and for God. So when you first meet Absalom at uh, at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1, this is what it says about him. It says, Absalom, David's son. Who was he? What do we need to know about him? Well, first thing you need to know, he had a beautiful sister. Her name was Tamar. It's almost like at the very beginning of the passage, they're saying, hey, the, the thing that was foremost in Absalom's heart is he loved his sister. He cared about her. His beautiful sister, Tamar. And in King David's kind of chaotic, blended family, you know, there were dozens of children by all these different wives and concubines, but it seems like this bond between Tamar and Absalom is something special that the Bible's highlighting for us here. And after Tamar is violated by her brother Amnon, where does she go? She goes straight, of course, to her dear brother, Absalom. And here in verse 20, the first words we hear from Absalom, he speaks to his sister. Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this to heart. And you can hear, can't you, what's underneath his words. This rage that he's suppressing that's boiling up. Underneath, there's the sense of foreboding as he talks about the evil deed. And he's saying, brother, sister, brother. He's just magnifying how awful what has happened is as he repeats it. And so for the next couple of years, Tamar just haunts her brother's house like a ghost. And Absalom, every day for those two years, is reminded of what happened to his sister. And he's just nursing hatred in his heart towards his brother, In verse 23, 
the next thing we see happen. It says, after two full years. And I think what the writer wants us to know there is that the years were full of pain, full of anger, full of shame for Tamar. That there's this sense of the fullness of time, of this, this deed kind of ripening and growing like the water on the pot that's getting hotter and hotter and hotter until finally it boils over. So these two full years of the water boiling, and then finally Absalom decides to pay a visit to his father, the king. And you can immediately realize that he's up to something, right? Because He's seething in his house, and he's just kind of keeping all his anger in. And then all of a sudden, he goes to his dad and says, Dad, guess what? I'd love to throw a barbecue for everyone in the family. I've got these sheep. You know, we're going to be killing some sheep. Let's have everyone over for a party. And his dad, rightly, is, I mean, kind of suspicious, right? And so um, he, he goes, and he goes to his father, and you see by the way he reacts that really what Absalom cares about is he's only looking at himself and he's only looking at him and his sister's pain. Now look uh, how he manipulates his father. In verse 25 and 27, it says that he's pressing David in conversation. Like he's skillfully backing him into a corner so that Amnon, his brother, has no choice but to go to the party. And you know this, kids, like you, you know how to kind of work it with your parents, right? I mean, so he's kind of like backing him into the corner. So he's getting what he wants in kind of a roundabout way. Dad, you should come. Oh, son. No, I mean, we've got this whole retinue of my whole family and all my advisors. It's going to be way too expensive. I couldn't go. And he goes, well, at least if you can't go, please, you know, have all the sons go. And especially Amnon. And David is rightly suspicious. And so Amnon just kind of presses him. Look, he says it twice that he's pressing him. And he's manipulating his father. Now, we know, kids, it's for us to do this to our parents. If you're going to try to twist your parents arm and manipulate them, obviously, uh, that's unwise (laughs) and you shouldn't do that. But if your father's the king and you're manipulating him and you're causing him to sign the death warrant of his own son. I mean, that's not just unwise. That's not just being a disobedient child. I mean, that's treason. And not only that, look at how he speaks. He doesn't just manipulate David. He's also manipulating um, his, his people. Uh, look at how he speaks to his servants in verse 28. This is what the text says. He commands them. This is what he says. When I say, then you kill him. Don't fear. Haven't I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Basically, what he's saying to his servants, this is the the mind of Absalom. He's saying, listen, guys, there's no command higher than my command. There's no word greater than my word. You're my servants, so you do as you're told. If I command, then you obey. And what do the servants do? He commands and they obey. They've got no choice. They're pressed into a corner. And so they kill Amnon. When you look at the way Absalom is dealing with his servants, it's almost like the way a, like a general would direct his army. In fact, his words kind of echo the commission that the Lord gives to Joshua in, in Joshua 1.9. Listen to these words. God says to Joshua, kind of the army, uh, the general of the army of Israel, he says to Joshua, haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. 
Don't be frightened. The Lord your God is with you. But in Absalom's uh, directions to his servants, there's no mention of God. Who's with you? I'm with you. Whose word? My word. You see how Absalom is kind of subtly, not just usurping the role of the king, but he's, he's taking the place of God. In Absalom's speech, he, there's no regard for the Lord. There's no mention of God's word, which forbids taking the life of another. There's no mention of the king, because Absalom doesn't answer to any authority beside himself. Not his father and not God. Absalom has put himself in the throne of God. And his response to evil is rooted in this pride. Isn't that what, what happens when you experience pain? It has this blinding effect where all that you're aware of is yourself. All that you're aware of is your suffering. And other people's experiences, other people's perspective, well, that, that doesn't matter. And his response, really like all sin, is an act of cosmic treason. Now, Absalom's story, we, we recognize it because we see it played out in the news all the time, do we not? A young man who's nursing this profound pain and he reacts to injustice with violence. I mean, that's essentially the, the story in the nutshell of, of what happened in Milwaukee. There's this pain, there's this injustice that we see, there's this fear and this frustration that we have, so we'll riot. Uh, that, that's what happened um, in Dallas after uh, Philando Castile was killed. You know, all these words on Facebook, uh, people talking about doing something. This is what one Facebook post said. You know what you and I know what we must do. I don't mean that we're supposed to march. I don't mean we're supposed to attend conventions. We have to rally the troops. And then so a young man saw that, got angry. And went and decided to target police officers. I mean, and so this is common. I mean, this, is, this isn't just something that happened in ancient, the ancient Near East. I mean, this is something that's happening today. And this isn't something that, that always just results in murder. I mean, this is something that all of us nurse in our own hearts. It's common to all of us, not just violent young men or political revolutionaries. Think about when you um, shade the truth. To kind of get what you want from a friend or a spouse. What are you doing? You're using your words to press them into a corner. You're using your words to, to get your way. You're putting yourself on the throne. Above them. Think about this when you grumble under your breath after an argument with a spouse. You kind of nurse that anger in your own heart. And you kind of sit in the echo chamber of the, the things that you should have said or the things that you want to say. You're Absalom. Kids, if you make fun of people behind their backs, if you kind of disrespect your parents when they're not looking, what are you doing? You're Absalom. Uh, we, we all are. When we do this, we show contempt for these people that God has put in our lives and we show contempt for the God who made them. And when we do this, we're failing to let the word of God 
rule over our lips, rule over our hearts. And like Absalom, we're committing cosmic treason in the process. So while this temptation to kind of rebel and take matters into our own hands is a a real and present threat for most of us, uh, we have an equal and opposite temptation. And that's embodied in the text by King David. Now, David's tendency isn't to to just uh, fight evil by rebelling, just taking matters into his own hands. Instead, because David fails to let the word of God shape his actions, he's going to react by retreating. So that's kind of the other road that I'm saying you you don't want to go down. So we're going to see that God is going to have to direct our response to evil because like David, we're also prone to react by retreating. So David's reaction is maybe even more reprehensible than the reaction of Absalom because of David's position, because of his authority as king, and because he's the father of Tamar, as well as the father of Amnon. We read this passage and we're having some kind of expectation uh, that David's going to do something. But what David does, surprisingly, horribly, is nothing. And that choice of David's to retreat, rather than to engage the problem, it has devastating consequences. By retreating, David is abdicating his authority as king and he's allowing injustice to spread out of control. So first, his abandoning his authority. Let's just look at that. Now, we should find it strange that David, who we've seen, is this mighty warrior of Israel. When he gets angry uh, in in the situation with Goliath, what does he do? Oh, man, who's going to let this this Philistine say these things about God's people? I'm going to I'll grab a rock and I'll throw it. I'll take care of it. And so he jumps into action. I mean, he's this mighty warrior. When David hears what happens to his daughter, what does the text say? Let's look. It says in verse 21, when King David heard all these things, he was very angry. Now, you English teachers here know that using the word very just doesn't really help you get a point across very, very well. Um, because it's just, it's just not great writing. And although the ESV translation is, is more kind of a true translation, uh, the NIV maybe does it more justice. It says, when King David heard these things, he was furious. You see the power of that? I mean, would you want, rather me say, hey, I love you very much, or I'm enraptured by you. I mean, it's, it's just night and day. So when David heard these things, let's just say he was furious. Rightly so. We can understand that David was furious. So what does David do? What does the warrior of Israel, what does the king do when he's furious? We think, go, fight, do something, David. You're the king. You're the ruler. Rule. You're the judge of Israel. Judge. Fight for your daughter. Fight for your family. But he doesn't do anything. He absolutely doesn't do anything at all. He just sits there. He was angry. He was furious, period. And so strike one, right? I mean, the ball's coming into David's court. He can do something with it. And he totally drops the ball. But he's got another chance. In verse 24, Absalom approaches the king. Now, this is two years later. 
So you think maybe David has kind of learned something uh, in two years. Absalom approaches the king and David has another chance to intervene and make the situation right uh, before it goes out of control. As the king, David has the authority to shut down the barbecue, <laughs> to cancel the party, to say, no, my, my kids aren't going with you because you're psychotic, Absalom, and you don't listen to anyone but yourself. So he asks his son, verse 24, why should your brother go with you? You can tell he's a little bit suspicious and you're like, great, finally, he's going to jump in. He's going to do something. And you wonder, is he going to engage? The whole plot right now is hanging on David's response. Does he engage? He retreats. He has the authority to act, but he chooses not to exercise it. Why is that? Is it because he's so stricken with grief over the violation of his daughter? I don't. I don't think so. I think what's happening in David's heart is that he's grieving his own sin. Because what we learned when Nathan, the prophet, confronted David after uh, the sin of uh, taking um, Uriah's life and committing adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan said, the sword's never going to depart from your house. David, what you have done is going to have long-lasting consequences. And so David looks at the actions of his son and he goes, he's just like me. I did this. And David, just like Absalom, just turns in on himself. And not in anger, but in guilt. And you've, you've maybe done that. I mean, especially um, if you're in this room and you're a Christian and you have God's given you some kind of conviction about your sin, there's a temptation for all of us to just look at what we've done wrong and just be paralyzed. And so David sees what he's done and he sees the consequences of his actions and he totally freezes up. He can't act. And he sees, man, the sins of the father are just repeated in the son. I mean, who, who am I to judge? This is all my fault. But David, even though he's a sinner, I mean, he's still the king. God still called him to judge the people. He's still the father of Absalom and uh, Tamar and Abnon. And because he doesn't judge, because he retreats rather than intervenes, he leaves this legacy of pain and sorrow and injustice for his children and his children's children after him. Absalom, just like his father now, is going to become a murderer. And Absalom, like his father before him, is going to have to flee from the king of Israel and take asylum in the house of a foreign king. Like father, like son. Now, not only does the injustice spread from father to son, but it seems like this grief and pain just spreads like a poison over all of Israel. In 36 and 37, you see that when the news comes, David's entire household is struck with what feels like just continuous prolonged grief and isn't that the case like when we fail to act it doesn't just affect us it doesn't just affect our family i mean it has consequences that ripple out because of the way god has made us as people who are connected in community or people who are made to be in society with each other so if you think your sin is just about you if you think it doesn't affect anyone else I mean, the Bible says you, you're sorely mistaken. 
And so David mourns and his whole household mourns and weeps because now he's not just lost one son. He's lost two sons. Amnon is cast out. Amnon is banished. Um, and once again, the, the, the chapter uh, ends where it begins. With David full of emotion, full of sorrow, but still as a statue. And he's sad, he mourns and weeps, but he still doesn't do anything. <laughs> and so for us, I wonder if you're confronted with evil, if you're confronted with real pain, when you hear about the violence in the news, when you hear about the stuff that's going on in, in our own backyard, when you hear about injustice and oppression, do you, like David, merely just get very angry? Does your anger, does it, does it push you to seek the Lord? Does it push you to listen to him? Does it push you to act or does it paralyze you? Um, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this famous letter from the Birmingham jail. And he was writing it to a group of southern pastors, southern kind of conservative white people that said, we care about what's going on and we're angry, too. But you just got to wait, Martin Luther King. You just got to wait because the the time's not right yet. Uh, You have to be patient. You have to retreat. We can't engage yet uh, with this injustice. And this is what he wrote from a jail in Birmingham to those men. He said, We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and the actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do what is right. Notice that he says the time isn't ripe to riot. The time isn't ripe to retreat. The time is right. Time is ripe to do what's right, to do what's good. Or you could look at uh, John Calvin. What does he have to say? (laughs) This is what he says about this passage. He says, we're taught in this passage. It's not enough for evil to distress us. It's not enough just to get very angry. But we, God's people, should correct it. We must make an effort as far as we are able. When David did not perform his office, it was the same as putting a noose around his son Absalom's neck. You can't retreat. We have to engage. For fathers in this room, if you're in any kind of position of authority, for mothers... For people in offices, if you see evil, if you see injustice and you don't act, if you don't speak out, you're piling sin upon sin and you're continuing the cycle of suffering. And I wonder, is there a a confrontation that you need to have with someone lovingly where you need to step in? Is there a, a confession that you need to make to someone? Do you feel like you lack the moral authority? Because <laughs> you're a sinner too. Students in this room, I wonder, um, when you're with your friends, do you, do you sit silently when you hear people mistreat others or make fun of people or misuse the name of God? Parents and elders of the church, 
If you see your younger brothers and sisters, the college students, the high school kids around here making the same mistakes that you made, can you please engage? Can you please speak out? The time is always ripe to do what is right. Now, we know we can't retreat, right? We know we have to engage. Uh, but there's only so much we can do. The evil in this world, it's systemic, it's universal. And as we've seen, the effects of sin cause us to be tempted, even as we seek to fight against evil. So we need someone to fight for us. We need a rescuer. And thankfully, our text points us to a greater king. A greater king than David, a greater king than Absalom. The true son of David, Jesus Christ. So if we're going to let God direct how we respond to evil, if we're going to let God show us how to do what's right in the world, we're going to react by first resting in the judgment of the true king. Now, so a a reader, or if you're listening, um, you could rightfully ask, okay, where in the world in this passage is Jesus? Because and a lot of the Old Testament is like this. The whole book of Judges is like this, where you go... Can I just get to Jesus, please? Because this is so rough. And especially as we look through the second half of Samuel, no one in Israel is doing what's right. No one's acting justly, not the king, not his sons, no one in his court. And and God in this passage is never even acknowledged by any of the main characters in the text. There's no hero and there's no just and righteous king. But yet we at this church, and we as Christians believe that the whole Bible points to Jesus Christ, even the Old Testament. And it builds anticipation for his coming, sometimes through types and shadows. So here, as, in, as is often in the case in the Old Testament, if you can't see Christ clearly in the light of the text, you can see him clearly in the shadows, in the space between where the light shines. Now, as a kid, I was fascinated by my shadow. A lot of times I'd be walking with my parents down the street in the afternoon, the sun shining, and I'd just kind of lose track of them because I'd be sitting looking at my shadow on the ground. I'm kind of delighted my son is the same way, that he's easily distracted by looking at his shadow. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of fascinating, right? Because look at how long my arms are. Look at how long my legs are. Look at how tall I am. Look at how tall you are. And so you're just focusing on the shadow. And sometimes if you want to find Christ in the Old Testament... And that's what you do. You, you, you look at shadows. And you go, what is this outline of someone that I see? Uh, what is this pointing to? What, what is this building anticipation and hope for? Sometimes by just letting my hopes down continuously. So you ask the question, what kind of king should step in? What kind of king do the people need? Well, A true king, Jesus, he's going to balance authority and submission to authority. You see, Absalom is acting on his own authority with no regard to his father, with no regard to God. He's submitting to no one and he's recognizing no authority above himself. Now, David just sits on his authority and doesn't do anything. But Jesus Christ, when he comes into the world, this is what it says in John five nineteen. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son does nothing of his own accord, but he only does what he sees his father doing. Only Jesus engages with the sin of the world under the authority of his father, not to destroy and condemn the world, 
but as it says in John 3:17, to save the world through himself. In Luke 22, at the end of his life, Jesus is sitting in the garden of Gethsemane, and it says he's waiting on the will of his father. He's doing what nobody in this passage says. He's praying to God, saying, God, what should I do? Will you take this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Father. We're called to live like Christ. We're called to be people who are under authority, but acting with authority in the world. And this true king, not only does does he balance kind of power and submission, he's leaving a better legacy than David. The, uh, we've seen the, the, the unbridled sin of Amnon and the, and the murder, murderous rage of Absalom. They're both mirrors of the sins of David. And by h- highlighting these repeated patterns, I think the author is trying to say that David is leaving a legacy for his kids. Parents, you think about that. I know you do. That David left a legacy for his kids. And it, and it wasn't a great one. It's this pattern that continues for the rest of the book. But only Jesus Christ can leave a legacy for his heirs that is unstained by sin. And only when we listen to him can all the, the damage that we pass on be redeemed. Unlike Absalom and David, when Jesus encounters human sinfulness, he absorbs it. Without passing it on. The cycle stops with Christ. Sin, death, and the grave. He conquers them and he comes out on the other side. And only through the true king can we see how a loss can bring eternal gain. Our passage this morning ends with a father who's grieving the loss of two of his sons. Amnon to the grave and Absalom to exile. And notice how the author is highlighting the absence of Absalom. It says, Absalom fled, Absalom fled, Absalom fled. He's fleeing the presence of his father, the king. Now, strangely, the fate of the sons of David, they they show us the twin consequences of sin in our own life. Sin sin brings death and sin, sin brings destruction or separation from our father. Amnon was killed. Absalom was exiled. There's there's the the things that all of us face as a consequence of sin. And Jesus Christ is the son who leaves the father's presence, who is exiled. And he's the son who undergoes judgment, not for his own sins like Abnon, but for the sins of the world. And so David is restored to his father and even now, Jesus Christ is restored to his father, and even now he's seated in glory at God's right hand. So even though God is not acknowledged by Absalom or David, he is still ruling and working and fulfilling his word. And as we watch the reactions of Absalom, we watch the reactions of David, we can anticipate a better kind of king, a powerful, a submissive king, one who can judge sin sinlessly, and one who can leave a better legacy than David. So as we walk away today, what are we going to do? How should we react to the violence and the injustice of our time? Now, at the end of his life, David gives us a glimpse into the proper response that we can have. The response of humble submission to God's word. This is what he says in 2 Samuel 23. 
If you want to look on, it's in uh, verses 2 and 4, 2 Samuel 23. David's praying at the end of his life, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David saying, when a ruler fears God and listens to his word, he brings justice and peace to his people. So for you, whatever authority God has given you, whatever influence God has given you at work or at home or in the city, you're to fear God. You're to trust him. You're to listen to his word as you engage with injustice. And when you engage sin, Let his word direct your actions. And when you can't act, you can wait on the perfect judgment of God. God promises to judge all evil one day through Jesus Christ. He is the king who sat under judgment for his people's sins. And he is the king who will come back again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And he entered into a broken world not to condemn it, but to redeem it. By trusting him, we're empowered to be like him in the world. To resist the pull of rebellion and retreat. To really be salt and light in the world. Jesus Christ leaves his people a better inheritance than David. And his spilled blood blesses rather than curses us. So if you're grieved by the violence you see in the news, if you're grieved by the corruption... If you're grieved by what you see, if you're in pain, run to Jesus and run to his people, run to the church. Absalom and David, they just kind of suffered alone in silence, but run to God's people. God loves you so much. He's given you a people to belong to. So you don't have to bear this weight on your own. Rest in his word, trust in his rule. Ask him for the power to speak and act for justice in the world. The time's always ripe to do what is right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, each of us knows uh, how we're uh, tempted to retreat or to rebel and take matters in our own hands. And Lord, we confess sometimes the, uh, the evil out there and the evil here in our own hearts is too great. And overwhelms us. So Lord, please come. Please rule. Please change our hearts. Empower us. Open up your word to us. And uh, equip us to be able to be salt and light in this world. Thank you for your word of warning and the word of hope uh, this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's